In this interview, I am joined by Dai Zan Skinner, a British Zen Roshi holding lineages in both the Soto and Rinzai schools. We learn about Dai Zan's Catholic upbringing, his fascination with the 14th century Christian contemplative text, The Cloud of Unknowing, and how a search throughout Asia eventually led him to become a Zen monk for over 20 years. We lift the lid of his traditional training, including intensely painful meditation practice, severe sleep deprivation, and deep emotional catharsis. Daizan also reveals why in his teaching he emphasizes enlightenment, lays out a traditional four-stage model of awakening, and details his own awakening experiences in accordance with that model. So without further ado, Daizan Skinner. Daizan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit about your upbringing and your background and how it was you became interested in Zen Buddhism? Okay, well, um, so I guess it depends how far back you want to go. I come from a Catholic background. Both of my parents were heads of Catholic schools at a certain point. Um, I, I think it's a bit arbitrary, but I tend to trace things back to um, my father, really, when, when uh, uh, he was always very, very sporty, very keen on different kinds of sport, and he got into squash, and there was a kind of a squash boom back in the sort of 70s, I guess. But uh, a little bit before then, he was kind of ahead of the curve. He got interested in squash, in, in, and the area I grew up in, down in Kent, um, basically the only squash court we had in the area was in the local army camp. So I would have been maybe, I don't know, six, seven years old or something like that. He would come back from these squash games with army officers, essentially, with these stories that essentially any time they wanted, the Russians could be across Europe in 24 hours, um, over the channel and through the UK in you know, another few days. And all we could basically do was to press the button and that was ba basically it and so i i um i can remember you know in the sort of early days of that realization um quite a lot of fear i can remember waking up in the night with you know like a heavy lorry going by on the road or something thinking this is it this is it you know that kind of stuff um but later on i mean you just can't stay scared forever but what it really did instill was a tremendous kind of urgency, this sense that life was very likely to be shortened, you know, and uh, that time was so, so important. And so um, um, I wanted to do everything. I wanted to sort of grab it all with both hands. And so I, you know, I did all the normal school stuff, study stuff, and I, you know, I got a job in the, you know, corporate sort of thing, and I got the mortgage. I went up a couple of steps up that, and I could sort of look around and see that's me in five years, and that's me in ten years, and all that kind of stuff. And it was like, right, and that, what's next? You know, that was the kind of feel. And uh, and so when I was 25, 25, I think it was 26, maybe, I sold the house, gave all the money away, and jumped. Uh, into a Zen monastery, and I was there for about 14 years or so, and then went to another one for about another five years or so. So I spent about 20 years in the sort of Zen world, really. Uh, 
adventures in that field. And then I came back from Japan in uh, uh, 2007, in June 2007. And uh, I'd been pretty out of it for a long time by that point, you know, pretty much in a different zone. So I, uh, I didn't really have any much or any contacts or anything. So I, um, I did a walk. I went uh, down to the south tip of the Isle of Wight, St. Catherine's Point. Um, and midsummer morning, the 21st of June, I just started walking northwards and walked across the island and then hitched a ride over on a boat and then straight up the center line of the island of Britain um, to a place called Cape Ruth up on the north coast of uh, Scotland. And uh, basically, just as I walked, I didn't touch any money. I just lived on food that people put in my bowl over that summer. And, uh, and that was a kind of an opportunity to sort of get my feet back on this island to get a feel for what people were finding important and um and uh, and some of the people along the way actually that i met and so on you know stayed in touch over the years and actually for our 10th anniversary we had a little retreat down at st catherine's um down on the south of the other way and it was really nice i could invite all these people who'd who'd been strung out along the country, you know, so they didn't get to actually meet each other. They could all be in one place. And that was really cool. That's fascinating. I'd like to ask you about a lot of those waypoints, actually, as we as we go on. I'm curious why it was that, well, given that you were raised in a Catholic context, yeah, uh, you could have just as easily become a monk, in, a Catholic monk, for instance. So what was it yeah. about... Was it something in Catholicism that didn't quite satisfy? Or was it something in Zen that appealed? Or what, what was that transition period? All right, yeah, yeah, good question. So, um, uh, hmm, I, uh, it's probably a matter of circumstance. And, and subsequently, I've met some very extraordinary people who've gone very deep in the, Catholic realm, I suppose, but but as I encountered it, um, there was um, a strong sort of um, sense of caution over um, any kind of inner journey, I suppose, or or any kind of um, contemplative or you know inward focused sort of exploratory kind of approach. There were some fairly cut and dried kind of things on offer, but. But there was this sort of ooh, dangerous kind of um, uh, sense around it all. Um, and so I just didn't particularly meet um, people who, who I suppose impressed me as, as being, you know, having, you know, a, a sort of a living connection with um, what I sensed was a possibility. Now, having said that, my first meditation teacher actually was a Catholic priest. A guy called Father Jack Madden, who um, was a friend of my father's, and uh, like many Catholic priests, very very keen golfer, and uh, I, he used to come to supper because he was like my father, very sporty, and uh, and I remember him talking around the supper table about uh, uh, he'd um, he'd got into meditation to help his, his golf game, and uh, I remember he said it's my secret weapon, you know. And um, they have a very competitive golf league, actually. In, uh, in and he became the um, the all UK, uh, all England priest champion um, 
So it worked. His secret weapon worked. So he, he showed me how to meditate. He was my first guy. But again, the motivation was, um, I suppose, what I would nowadays call a sort of a health, well-being, functioning motivation rather than, a, um, I suppose, what we could call a contemplative or investigative kind of motivation. But nevertheless, I, I phoned him up, actually, uh, maybe a year or two ago, and uh, he ended up the parish priest in Bexley, just in southeast London. And uh, he's got Parkinson's now, so he's not playing golf anymore. But he said he's still, all these years later, still meditating. So I thought that was kind of cool. That's interesting. What technique did he teach you? Um, it, it was um, it was kind of his variation on TM, you know, with a sort of a, a word or a mantra, that sort of thing. No, no emphasis on posture or alignment or or or, 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 or very non-discursive. And so I tried for uh, I don't know, maybe a year or two, something like that. And then actually, I um, I found myself uh, that I it kind of it was very calming, very, very peaceful, but I ended up feeling a bit spaced out, a bit sort of dissociated, a bit sort of at a remove to life that didn't seem to be quite, quite right. And I was doing it by myself, probably doing it completely wrong, whatever. Um, so, but, but I kind of tailed it off. It, it felt like it wasn't quite leading where I sensed, you know, things could potentially go. But it was kind of an interesting experiment for a year or two. From what I understand, there's quite a history of um, dialogue and practice exchange between the Catholic Church and Buddhism. I'm thinking about Thomas Merton's Asian Journal, which I reread recently, which is mostly about about the Tibetans in exile. He, that he was he was interested in them particularly, and also Father William Johnston, whose book Christian yeah. Zen, which Good is God. actually here. <laughs> Oh, okay. Actually, happened. To, I looked at that the other day, recently as well. Perhaps you've noticed. Yeah. No. Have you ever? Have you ever? Um, you ever come across any of those kind of characters in your travels in Japan? Well, you know, I actually, um, I'm, I'm a huge fan. Having a sort of loop back in this direction a little bit, I'm a huge fan of a text called The Cloud of Unknowing, and I got to meet a Dominican friar who's kind of like a monk, but on the road rather than in a monastery called Father Conrad Pepler. Uh, this would have been back in the late 80s I, I met him. He used to come and stay in a Zen monastery I lived in. And um, he was um, he was never very interested in Zen. He just kind of liked hanging out with monks, really. And he was a, he'd, he'd written quite a lot about the cloud of unknowing. And this is, um, uh, it's written in the 14th century on this island in English, um, it's very much got a sort of a, you can tell the sense of humor, the, the way the thought patterns work. It's absolutely a product of this soil that we're on. Um, but the guy's the real deal. And uh, so I've led some retreats based around, if you look at the Zen perspective on the cloud of unknowing. Um, but actually what, what, what we've been trying to do in those is... Uh, actually trying to do the cloud of unknowing as full justice as we can people seem to quite a lot of people seem to take in it and try and sort of put their spin on it and actually what i'm trying to do trying to is actually get to what he really intended and so on and and who he was because it's an anonymous book 
but I reckon I tracked down very lightly who it was. And I've certainly managed to found, find the first person that we have sort of evidence of actually putting it into practice, you know, this text and how it played out in his life and so on. And so uh, I'm going to be doing a little bit more with that. It's one of my projects because I feel it's a beautiful bridge, um, if you like, text and tradition that hasn't yet fully been, I feel, given the, given its due. What is it you think you found there in terms of what the author is really trying to say? Who is the author and who who's the person that you've, can you, you know, who's the person that you found put it into practice? Can you give a bit of, a bit of info on that? Okay. I mean, what's the heart of it? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's it's um, it's uh, uh, the, the the central image is you've got you, okay, and there's God, and between you is this cloud of unknowing, this uh, this sort of um, impenetrable mist of you know that you cannot see through, but yet you wish to, you intend to, and. Um, and, and essentially, that's what you do. And that's very similar to what we call Cohen study in Zen. It's like we have these impossible questions where that you're just like a, you're, it's like you're staring at a closed door. You know what I mean? But through doing that, through, through facing the impossible, through facing and not flinching, staying with that, it's almost like using his imagery, it's almost like that creates a space in which God can creep around the back and give you a big fat hug. Now he doesn't exactly use those terms, but 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 clearly his his path has um, fruits. It's a path that that leads to uh, beautiful outcomes, and and he's a guy who's clearly done it. Now in, he's very careful that um, it's anonymous. Okay, he he uh, we 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 it's. It's 99% certain he was a priest because he, he writes a blessing in it that apparently a, only a priest would have done. Um, and and uh, it seems almost certain, and I'm, I'm pretty certain, um, that he was in um, the sort of East Midlands area, probably now Nottinghamshire or possibly Leicestershire. And almost certainly he was... Um, uh, a Carthusian monk. Carthusians are the order in which they're essentially hermits, but they live in a kind of a compound. They each have a kind of a hermit's hut within a compound. And uh, so they meet together for, you know, services, but there's no sort of social life, as it were. They're essentially hermits. Um, and um, he's writing to a young man. And bear in mind, this is the century of the Hundred Years' War. Um, a lot of people would have had military experience and a lot of the imagery he uses in the text is, is quite masculine, you know, it's quite, you know, facing the enemy and, you know, when you're overrun by invading thoughts, it's like the enemy, you know, a sort of an enemy onslaught. And so this young man he's writing for, I suspect, is almost certainly a sort of a ex-military guy who, like a significant proportion, end up in monasteries, you know, they're a bit messed up through their experience and so on, end up in that kind of situation. Now, there is a Carthusian ruin of a Carthusian monastery in the sort of East Midlands that I suspect almost certainly is, is the origin. And the guy who we have as the first practitioner that we have documentary evidence around is another Carthusian monk from a place called Mount Grace Priory, which is up in 
now um, probably just on the edge of Yorkshire and Cleveland, you know, kind of in the northeast. Uh, and a guy, he's a guy called Richard Methley, who um, uh, normally Carthusians are anonymous in their writings, but but some of them we, we know. Richard Methley signed his stuff, and uh, he he actually um, translated the cloud into Latin, which because it, it, it was written in English in a, in a very kind of rich poetic English, quite alliterative, and um, and he. Um, uh, he has, we have three kind of spiritual diaries by this guy of what his daily practice was like and what he experienced and so on. Pretty unusual. And so he actually spells out how he actually applied these teachings of the cloud. So I'm, I'm, we're going to be probably next year or, or the year after going to be doing a bit more with it. And I'm hoping to actually lead a retreat at the ruin of that Carthusian monastery where most likely it's come from, you know, that one in the East Midlands, and but possibly also up at Mount Grace, also where Richard Methley was. Um, yeah, and uh, and I've, it, I feel it's a, it's a very small way of honouring, you know, the roots that come from this island that I deeply treasure and honour. Richard Methley, when was he living? So the, the cloud itself was written in... Um, in sort of the second half of the 14th century, you know, right in the, probably a, um, not that long after the Battle of Poitiers. You know, we had the big three battles of the of the Hundred Year War, Hundred Years War, Crecy, and then Poitiers, and then Agincourt. So it's before Agincourt, almost certainly. Um, and then Richard Methley was about, to, I think he's about 60 years later, 50, 60 years later. So you know, he's he's the earliest we got at the moment. I mean, you know, who knows what they might dig out, but that's what we've got right now. That's fascinating. We, we will get to your more of your biography in a moment, but this is very interesting. Um, do you have a Catholic background or is that what you do? Is that your thing? Or your no. Thing? Uh, yes, I was raised actually, but in a very hands-off, hands-off Catholic upbringing, not... Yeah, I was an altar boy when I was... Oh, me too. Yeah, so I got frocked up and all that, and I loved the ritual of it, actually. I loved the yeah. quiet. And we went to the early morning mass where there was no singing, and so that was even better. It was just the sort of straight ritual. That was a childhood thing for me. I'm actually, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm more interested in your interest in it, in a certain sense. That's, that's, what's, uh, oh, yeah. that's what's interesting to me. Yeah, I'm curious because you, of course, have very steeped in Zen, and have done significant traditional monastic training. But you, you said there that you so treasure the spiritual material of the British Isles also. Why is that? Why, to play somewhat devil's advocate, why not just do Zen? Yeah, 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 yeah. Good question. Right. Well, um, it's kind of an interesting one. Um, uh, and actually, even in Japan, people used to come and ask me frequently, how does living such a hard life have anything to do with finding happiness? They just couldn't connect, couldn't connect. And that would be, you know, that situation would be multiplied, I don't know how many times over here. You know, people just wouldn't get it. Um, and... Uh, and in a sense, rightfully so. What Zen has largely become in Japan, mainstream 
kind of Zen has become um, a sort of a, a boot camp experience for young men, typically between about 19 and 22 years old, something like that, full of juice, you know, with young men's stuff and all that. Um, and uh, these young men very largely come from temple families. Okay, So their dad is the priest of a temple, which is like the equivalent of, say, a Church of England vicarage, you know, like a church in the country or maybe in a town, something like that. And so the eldest son is kind of the heir apparent to this, this setup, you know, and so come, you know, his sort of late teens or whatever, he gets sent off to the, to the, well, you, we call it a monastery, but, but really I suppose it would be more authentically called a seminary, okay? And he goes through this kind of um, rite of passage, which is pretty rough, you know, they get pushed pretty hard. I mean, you know, it's, it's probably uh, fairly equivalent to sort of military training in, in many ways, you know? It's, it's really no messing about. People end up getting beriberi and you know, getting pretty sick in some cases, and you know, it's uh, um, but it's uh, it's it's a sort of a, as I say, a kind of a rite of passage, um, and uh, you know, they might be there for, in some cases, quite a short time, a year or so, and it could be three years, probably not that likely to be that much more than that, um, uh, and then um, at any time when dad gets sick or needs needs the boy, then he has to go back. His primary responsibility is to his home temple. And so what happens is, um, you know, you have these temple families and they all know each other. So, um, you know, you might have a girl from down the valley from a temple who's broadly the same age as the young boy here. And, you know, it's not, it's not exactly an arranged marriage, but they get to meet each other and, they, off, they often sort of, they all understand the life and stuff. So it's almost like a sort of a caste of its own within Japanese society these days. Um, and then you get a relatively few people who, who go in and do that sort of thing, who don't come from temple families, you know, it'd be way under 10%, maybe 5%. And they typically stay longer and they typically end up becoming the Zen masters and so on, and the people who end up running the training monasteries down the line, because they don't have these responsibilities in other temples. So it's a radically different kind of a, a situation, I suppose, to the expectation of your average Western spiritual seeker. Um, and so the one thing that was very clear when I came back from Japan, I was walking through the country with clueless, no idea how on earth, you know, things were going to evolve. The one thing that was clear was it would be completely pointless to try to create, you know, like a little bit of Japan in Leicestershire or something. You know, it would be, what would it be? Sort of um, some kind of eccentric tweeness at best, really. So um, what it, what, needed to happen, it seemed to me, was something that was more directly relevant to the stresses and and uh, difficulties and pains of 21st century, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, Western European life. And so, you know, I've kept a very strong connection with Japan and I take a group there every summer 
you know, my, meet my teacher in many cases and so on, and we do retreats. And we're very, very informed by, you know, where it all comes from. Um, uh, but at the same time, um, it's, it's very clear that, uh, you know, a sort of a slavish copy of that just isn't, isn't particularly relevant or realistic. That's interesting. So what does that have to do with the cloud unknowing and this sort of spiritual or contemplative heritage of the British Isles? I can see how that's a way of bringing what you've learned from Zen to a modern context. But how does that link in with, with the cloud of unknowing and other related themes? Well, this is a really, really interesting thing. We have our own historical, you know, sort of um, evolution. And basically, you know, over the centuries in our culture, the particularly our Catholic culture, the price tag for going deep in this work is essentially life imprisonment. You're, you're, you're taken out of society forever and insulated from society. And even more, society is insulated from you. So now, if you look at that from a perspective of centuries it's almost like a a vitamin that sort of got missed you know little bit little bit little bit little bit little bit there's an impact there and so we live in a culture which is deficient in that vitamin for well in our case in the uk when was when was uh, henry VIII? 600 years something you know something maybe um you know, that vitamin has been largely deficient, largely absent. And so um, what the, you know, contemplative tradition, I suppose, that I've been fortunate enough to sort of immerse in for, you know, a couple of decades, um, you know, I've been able to, to connect with some things which um, I believed would be a value within this country and culture that we're in. And so, you know, the last... Uh, basically, the last sort of um, what's it been? Twelve years, I suppose. I've been back here. It's been a, a sort of a, a, an exploration around which elements of that culture actually do resonate here, which do work, which actually create um, sustainable uh, uh, shifts in in perspective that make life, you know, more vital, more grounded, more peaceful and more fun. That's very interesting indeed. As you mentioned, you began studying Soto Zen, the Soto Zen school yeah. with Daishan yeah. Morgan uh, in Northumberland. And yeah. as you mentioned, you studied with him for 14 years and entered full-time yes. monastic training in 1989. 18, yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, and yeah. were ordained as a novice in 91. That's, um, yeah, yeah. More yeah. or less, that right, right? And then in 95, you received Dharma transmission. So I'm curious why you decided to become a monk. And and I'm also curious, during that period uh, of your Soto training, what your monastic yeah. training entailed? Mm. So, um, well, for me, um, so I suppose, I you know, I had, as, a, as we talked about before, I had this kind of urgency around things. And, uh, and it, it seemed to really crystallize around some kind of inner journey. And so um, I got kind of interested in meditation a little bit more on Buddhism specifically. And so I started to look around a bit and I went to Southeast Asia 
um, and uh, and uh, the Himalayas. And I remember, for example, in Southeast Asia, I met a Theravada monk. And uh, I bear in mind, I sort of knew nothing. I remember our conversation went along the lines of, how long does it take before you get enlightened? And the response was, no, nobody gets enlightened. Only the Buddha was enlightened. So that seemed a bit pointless. So um, that was a little bit of a turn off. Um, and um, similarly, I, I, I kind of had a trip up into the Himalayas and I was exploring the sort of uh, um, the uh, cultures around, um, uh, particularly in Ladakh, where, where it's very Tibetan influenced culture and, uh, you know, Vajrayana practice and so on. And, and also um, Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama lived. And again, I just sort of didn't really connect. It was sort of interesting. It was extremely dirty. I don't know if you've explored the Himalayas at all. Certainly that end of the Himalayas, they don't really wash very much. There's not a lot of rain and stuff. And everything was black. You know, it's like inside the temples, all these tankers were just in various stages of, of turning to black. And very poignant in a way and kind of, uh, in a sense, quite profound, I suppose. But anything you touched seemed to have this sort of, this, this, these button lamps, you know, everything. And um, so I, I... This is the 80s, was it? This would have been in the 80s, yeah. This would have been in the 80s. So anyway, it's probably different now. They might have been cleaned up a bit, I don't know. But um, uh, so anyway, no, it didn't kind of resonate. But you know how these things go. Um, it just so turned out, I was living in Newcastle at the time, it just so turned out that in the very next street to where I was living, there was this little Soto Zen meditation group that met every week, literally one street away. And so I started to go there and it was this very open, very non-manipulative, very spacious kind of practice. And it was like, yeah, this is it. This is what I was, and it was almost immediate that that was that it felt like that was that was this was an arena in which if anything arose, it was going to be authentic because there's no fooling about here, you know. So that was tremendously appealing. So yeah, so um, so then um, um, I suppose you know with with career and everything like that, um, uh, there was a sense of possibility there was a sense of a door opening how how seriously are you going to take this and um so there was that within me which really really wanted to do this you know and i i kind of had a sense that it uh, for it to really work it had to be you know both feet in sort of thing full full tilt and so that was the deal. That was what I went for. So I kind of really set things up so there was no plan B. Um, and so um, so I ended up, um, so the, the way the monastery was set up, um, I lived in the meditation hall where you have um, essentially six foot by three feet on the meditation platform, which is your living space with another guy this side, another guy this side. And at the end, you have two cupboards. The bottom one is... Uh, bedding and so on and the top one is uh, where your clothes are and that's basically you that's where you live where you meditate you have some meals there and stuff and um, so I lived like that for seven years basically the first seven years was like that and so the the idea is, is there's no hide essentially this is a, a process around facing yourself and um, uh, so either you do that 
or you go a bit crackers or you run away or once or twice I thought people try to commit suicide and in fact in one case they did manage um, and it's, it's pretty intense. Um, the image that they use is the image of a rock tumbler, you know, where you put in all these rough old pebbles and they kind of grind against each other for the months and years and hopefully eventually out come these beautiful jewels. So it was that kind of thing. The, um, the practice was intensely, um, uh, intensely socialised, I suppose. There was very, very little space. Uh, the counterbalance was, I don't know if you know, the sort of North Pennines and Northumberland, we're high up uh, in these very, very expansive open landscapes, an area they call England's last wilderness. And so um, that was a very nice sort of, um, how should we say, sort of safety valve, I suppose, when the uh, immediate perspective kind of got pretty, pretty hairy at times. Yeah. What happened with that suicide? Oh, you know, um, uh, so it's all a bit of an unfortunate story, uh, as I understand it. Um, um, the, the guy who I knew very, very well, it was, it was just after I'd actually moved on from the monastery, um, but I knew, knew the guy very well. He'd been having a hard time for some period of time, um, and uh, uh, he actually left, went back to his parents' place for a little bit, and hanged himself in their garage. Yeah, very sad. sad. Yeah. You know, it can get kind of intense. It can get kind of rough. You know, when it's just uh, with nowhere to hide. You know, facing things. We had the same thing in Japan. You know, we had one time. I remember we had one guy having a. I mean, it's it's pretty normal in 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 the Zen process that the first year, two, three, even can be pretty pretty rough. It's a pretty pretty much. You know, it's very like the English school system in many ways, or British school system. You know, everybody's down on the new boys kind of thing, all of that kind of stuff. Young guys together, I suppose. Um, and I, I remember we had one guy who, he just disappeared. You know, this was the middle of winter. And the cops found him, um, he'd been literally sleeping outside by the, the nearby river for about a week by that point tremendously life-threatening because it was way 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 below freezing he was outside you know and that was preferable to being in the temple you know people can get that miserable so what did what did your monastic training entail there in terms of uh, routine or practice was it focused around zazen yeah 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 a lot of um a lot of that open very 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 spacious open sitting practice um and uh um, and then a lot of emphasis on on bringing that spaciousness and that openness and that presence into action. So everybody had work to do, and there was a lot of emphasis on sort of meditation and motion in, in, in action. So for me, for probably about the first decade or so, I was doing building work, you know, putting up buildings, putting in wells and water lines and, you know, plumbing systems. And, and uh, so it was very... Uh, sort of, um, how could we say, sort of down to earth, very grounded, very non-intellectual. I remember one time the abbot said to us, try to read at least one book a year, you know. Um, and uh, so, um, yeah, that was basically the life. It was pretty simple. Um, and um, 
uh, you know, there'd be sort of retreat periods where it would be more um, focused on on the stillness, on the on the zazen, on the sitting, and um, and then other periods where you know always the days would begin and end with that and be a certain amount through the day, but 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 more emphasis on on kind of work. Again, very communal, people in there together, eating together, living together, working together. Yeah. Just coming back to that point you made about the difficulties of that sort of a life and how you can sort of go, you said one can go in three directions. You can get with the program, I suppose, is a way of saying it, go a little bit crackers or you leave. What, in your view, is the secret to, for want of a better word, succeeding in that environment in the training outcomes that are uh, that the environment is designed to bring about? Mm. Well, if I think about my my own situation, so so um, I've often mentioned probably I don't know something like maybe hmm, four months in something like that, four months, five months after being there, maybe six months. I kind of had this sort of sudden realization that there were about 30 people living there. I had a, actually a grudge against every single other person. There was something about every single other person. And then you kind of, it's like, okay, either um, you just sort of keep that going, you just um, dig in, or you take it as, okay, well, maybe there's something in, in me maybe there's something in me here that, that actually, um, uh, and so the fundamental process within all of this in, in Zen, they, they say eko hensho in Japanese, which essentially means to turn the light around. If you can use the stresses and strains and difficulties and all that as a way of illuminating your own stuff and, 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 through that, as it were, liberating your own stuff, then it's incredible. It's incredible. You're in this echo chamber, which is specifically designed to, as it were, accelerate you down that path of, um, of, uh, of, of some real thoroughgoing transformation. And if you resist that, you're in hell. You know, it's like, it's awful. It's absolutely awful. Um, so, so for me at least, I think that's that's really the sort of the point of it, and uh, and the value of it really, and um, and uh, so you know, I personally, I just really, really wanted to do it. As I said, I had this kind of urgency. So the first kind of couple of years, I suppose, probably, I just um, I was at it like a demon. I was doing more zazen than anybody in the place, and I was just pushing the boat out in every way. And I had so much stuff coming up, you know, that at times I, I just barely knew my own name. It was like I, I was shambling around like a zombie half the time. And, and I, I basically knew that the only thing that was keeping my health from breaking down was my youth. You know, the fact that I had a basic sort of level of, of youthful vitality on my side, you know, but but what it meant, you know, going at it like a bull at a gate like that was I was able to cover some ground, you know, and um, so for me, it was a tremendous, tremendous sort of blessing, really. Um, but it was pretty rough, you know, at times. And uh, as I say, you know, uh, 
it certainly sort of um, you know unleashes you from your moorings at times. At times, you probably are a bit technically sort of crackers, if you know what I mean. Mm. What sort of things were coming up during that period, and was there a point that you reached when the water started to run clear? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so uh, uh, um, it, it essentially um, um, uh, every damn little bit of pain that uh, that I had been carrying about, and uh, you know, I I um, come from a good family and a loving family, and I've had a great upbringing with loads of opportunities and, uh, you know, all sorts of blessings and good things. And, you know, like everybody else who does this stuff, even halfway seriously, I was gobsmacked at quite how much stuff I was carrying about, you know, and through this process, it was all kind of floating up, you know, stuff from pretty early on. And, um, and uh, basically, um, you know, you can't really deal with that, any of that in the abstract. It's only through allowing it to arise that it can sort of untwist and, and kind of come free to resolve and release and so on. So it's a matter of, um, you know, a, a lot of what I do these days is working people, this kind of thing. And uh, so a lot of it's about um, uh, how fast you want to go. And uh, so if people are sort of past the first flush of youth, then I tend to recommend, you know, taking it a, in a, a little bit more statelier pace, really, because it can be quite, quite rough, you know. But, um, you know, if you're, if you're young and uh, you've got the fire in your tail, then, you know, you can, you can cover some ground relatively quickly. But, it, but it's the same old stuff, you know, that, that I think... Um, you know, so many of us are, or all of us, probably are carrying about. It's um, it's it's just about impossible. Well, it not only just about it is impossible, to um, I think to be a human being and to to uh, to grow and develop without all of that. My teacher, used to, uh, my teacher in Japan, is a master Shinzen. He liked to use the image of. Um, if you imagine like a tiny baby where the you know the, the baby is um is kind of like um uh, has no option no choice other than to be an absolutely perfect baby and you know when it's hungry it cries when it's tired it sleeps it's just kind of a if you like a manifestation of the universe in baby form you know one with the universe in that form and then us human beings, we go through this process of, uh, of probably the longest of any animal, of this process of going from that to what we call adulthood. And essentially, our society's definition of adulthood is when we become able to take responsibility for ourselves. And so that process of going from babyhood to adulthood is a process of more and more uh, intensely, if you like, um, delimit, de, de, uh, uh, defining or, or separating. This is me, and that's the universe, and this is the bit that I that I take responsibility for. And so, um, inevitably, we end up 
with a worldview of essentially little old me, great big hostile universe. And that's not that anything's gone wrong, that it, that's, that's how it should be. Um, I, I've often mentioned, I've got a friend down in, um, in the West Country, a guy called Phil. He's got a daughter who, um, uh, she was born with a little birth defect, a uh, little brain defect, perfect baby, perfect beautiful she's now i don't know probably 20 something whatever she's still got that brain of a baby she can't hold her head up she can't eat by herself she can't talk she's a baby in a you know in a young woman's body and in many ways she's still got that amazing you know oneness with the universe in a sense but then there are many many things that katie will never know that you know, that I, you know, that all of us, we can know. So it's very important that we go through this journey, this, this process of, of adulthood, but there's a price tag. You know, we end up in this, um, I suppose, what the old French existentialists used to call alienation, condition of me against the world. And in that condition, you know, it doesn't matter how beautiful I am, how well connected I am, how intelligent I am, how, how, um, you know, how, how rich I am, none of that, you know, essentially, my life is inevitably a tragedy. There is no happy ending within that worldview. So those of us who choose can potentially, as it were, go on from that because that worldview is simply a view. It's not the be all and end all of reality. We can, as it were, move on from that little old me, great big hostile universe uh, predicament. And, um, um, but, but in that process of, of growth to, towards adulthood, you know, it's absolutely inevitable. It's baked into the process that we're gonna end up hurting. In your book, Practical Zen, uh, you lay out a sort of eight-week course, I suppose, of practices drawn from the various different Zen schools that you've studied with. And you're talking in, in the initial chapters about this uh, catharsis of this inner material. And interestingly enough, you make quite a link to the physical body. Uh, it, yeah. And you write here, when I first came to Zen practice more than 25 years ago, I had recently run a marathon and thought I was pretty fit. I arrived at the Soto Zen Monastery and was duly instructed to fold myself into the cross-legged position and face a wall. I had no idea how uncomfortable sitting still could be. My legs, my back, my shoulders, everywhere was tight. The whole experience was dominated by pain. Somehow I stayed with it. I was taught some Zen yoga moves that helped my body to begin adapting. In meditation, I did my best to stay present with these tight sensations. Over time, the knots began to shift, my body adapted, and gradually I found my hips could open up, my shoulders could drop a little, my legs could release. But as these areas opened, all kinds of memories, painful feelings and emotions came up. This physical and emotional release raged in my system for several years and still continues somewhat. And I think that's an iconic... Uh, Zen training approach is the way of physical pain. One of the classic uh, images, I think, that comes to mind when one thinks of Zen training. Can you talk a bit about the role of 
physical pain uh, in that process of catharsis which you discussed? Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so um, uh, I'm going to take a step back. So um, definitely within the Zen world, um, uh, it's it's pretty widely used that um, uh, uh, essentially they make you very uncomfortable, very tired, very miserable, all this kind of stuff until it's almost like you get to a point where you sort of um, you you sort of just give up and die almost, and then boof, something opens up, and you know this is something that. Uh, um, I've experienced a little bit in other settings too. I did a course a while, a while back, um, uh, which was a bit mad, really, in firewalking, where um, they had the, the culmination of this process was to walk over this bed of fire 108 times, and just about every single time you get burned, and you get burns on top of burns on top of burns, you know, until you know, until again the whole. You, you know, your your whole lower end is, is just a sheet of pain. And through that pain, some very interesting things open up. Now, that's not the only way to do it. That's not the, the it's not the only way for people to, as it were, um, transcend, if you like. If you look at, you know, we, we talked, we kind of alluded a little bit to Christian monasticism. They do it another way. St. Benedict has created this system where it's like you're in there for life. You've got this system of, of, of um, services that you're doing five times a day. And every two weeks you come back to the beginning again. You know, you go round and round and round and you get the same jobs and you're around the same people until, you know, essentially you're going to die of boredom. They'll, they bore you into spirituality. It, and it works. I've seen it work. And I've talked to people about this and they said, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. It just drives you crazy with boredom. And at a certain point, boof, there it is. You know? um, so there's, there's different ways of doing this. And the pain route is not one that I use because, um, A, it's not very well understood in the Western world, not even terribly well understood in Japan these days. Um, um, and, and also it's a pretty high stakes game. You can harm people potentially permanently. It's not that difficult to do people in permanently. Um, but I kind of enjoy mucking about with stuff a bit myself. And I've done some stuff with, you know, cold water and up in the mountains and so on. You did some Yambushi training? I have done, yeah, I have done. Um, in fact, I even did some last, uh, last year I was in Japan. I did another... Um, about of that stuff because I've started teaching some of that stuff in, um, in in the Scottish Highlands. We've been doing some mountain-based retreat type work, um, and uh, and yeah, they've got their their ways of doing things. Um, but anyway, um, so um, essentially, uh, the pain route is not the primary one I use um, for people to. Um, to particularly to get the first, as it were, step in the door. Um, I've, I've developed a kind of a retreat process 
which is based around um, essentially around intense questioning, intense um, inquiry. Um, uh, and when I say intense, I mean short periods, just uh, basically we have a 64 hour process and through this very intense questioning, I can get roughly typically about 50 to 60% of people who come, even people who've never meditated before, a clear and definite sense of where this is all going within the 64 hours. So, uh, and we often say it's a little bit like, um, you know, if we get on Eurostar, go to Paris for a game, who hasn't had a day trip to Paris. Um, and having, having had even a, that sort of toe in the water, that's a game changer. It's then, you know, there's just no doubt, you know, it's yours. Um, so, uh, and, and through that process, um, I don't tend to, we don't, we don't use that pain path, really. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'd like to talk to you a bit about actually that retreat you've developed, which from what I understand, combines Zen training with Charles Berner's Enlightenment Intensive Dyad work. That's right, who, who in turn was influenced by Zen, actually. And, and also my own teacher developed, uh, um, my, my own teacher um, sort of, uh, uh, he's, he's quite a maverick Zen teacher in Japan and uh, was very, very keen to really get things back to basics. And uh, he put up a sign at the gate in, in his monastery, place for young and old people to come and find their true nature. That was the focus of everything. And, uh, um, and in going back through the old Zen records, he, um, he kind of isolated um, uh, something that he found quite remarkable, really, which was that um, it seemed to be that the vast, vast majority of people got their sort of shift or their breakthrough, their, 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 their opening in a sort of a human matrix. It wasn't the guy up in the cave all by himself, you know, isolation. It was in the hurly-burly. So he, he sort of developed based on this a, a kind of a series of processes that he called group sanzen. He used the English term group and sanzen means uh, Zen study, essentially. And so we're, some of the stuff we do is informed by that as well. Yeah, so it's a, it's a mix. It's a, a mix of influences. And, and there's been another key influence, too, which um, has been uh, one of the things we found in the, in the process in in, uh, in you know, taking hundreds and hundreds of people every year through this is how a striking number of people have seemed to get it at night, you know, as they fall asleep or as they wake up or they wake up in the night or even in the dream, you know. So I, I went off and uh, did a little bit of extra study around this area because we, we've got a little thread of that in Zen, but it's not very specific. Whereas the Tibetans are very good on the sort of cut and dry processes of all these things. So I did a little bit of exploration around that um, so we could really bring that thread in the mix as well. And that's been really good. And then there's a ton of amazing stuff um, that's coming out of um, modern neuroscience. For example, um, uh, so um, uh, we work with questions. Most people, they start with the question, who am I? And uh, what we have people do once they've kind of really got their question is um, 
we pass around um, bags with um, with a with a kind of like uh, beach pebbles, you know, just rough old pebbles, and they just reach in and find one that fits nicely in their hand, and then with a marker pen, they keep they they write their question on that stone, and then they keep that stone in their hands for the entire 64 hours. The neuroscience guys have found if you have something in your hands that you're sort of twiddling with, it, it helps the sort of shifts in awareness and so on. And there's a ton of really interesting stuff like this kind of coming up. So we've, we've been putting a thread of that in the mix too. Basically, whatever's gonna supercharge this to give people the best possible chance to get what they've come for. That, that's basically the deal. That's fascinating. So a bit about that sleep side. I suppose Yazo was a, a, a strong part of your feature of your training. Uh, but I'm curious how, how that compares to the Tibetan practices that you investigated and where did you learn them? Uh, with whom did you study those those Tibetan practices of dream and sleep? And how does it compare yeah. to the, the sort of thing one might imagine in Zen as Yaza, for instance? Yeah, yeah. So Yaza, Ya means night and Za means sitting, night sitting. So, um, um, uh, so my own teacher, my own... Zen master over in Japan, um, Zen master Shinzen, he got his first opening, his first breakthrough, night sitting up in the mountain. Typically you do it outside the actual temple precinct up on the mountain, um, where one time he just shouted, Mu, there's a particular koan or question called Mu, and he just shouted Mu with his whole, he just put everything into it. And at that moment, boom, it opened up. So of course, uh, people nearly always teach based on what worked for them. So when I got to study Mu with him, every night he sent me up on the mountain and I just had to shout Mu all night, all night, all night, all night, and then come down to Sanzen to interview in the morning. You know, and then it was, I remember more than once he said, that's your training place up there, you know? And um, it was, a, it's, I mean, I don't know if you've been to Japan, but the mountains are very steep, um, very young geologically. So basically, very thickly forested. So once I was up there, you know, and it was dark, there was no coming down, you know. And so basically what, how it sort of worked was just like, just, you just shout maybe an hour or something like that. Your voice is gone, completely gone. And so, you know, I'd sit for a little bit, maybe my voice would come back an hour later, shout again, voice gone again, shredded, sit again, you know, like that kind of thing through the night. And um, how it was, for me at least, I don't know about other people, but for me, it felt like after a bit, like my whole body was almost like a chimney. And it was like belching out this kind of black smoke, just kind of like clearing this moo was just like a sort of a emptying and emptying and emptying and emptying, all this stuff going and going and going. And then I'd come down to Sanzen in the morning, nope, you know. Um, and so, um, so yeah, he was very, always very, very, very keen on, on Yaza and uh, night sitting. And uh, one of the threads that, um, um, uh, one of the things that happens with, with night sitting um, the, the way it's done Zen, Zen style is um, uh, you get super tired 
I mean, some people, you know, they, 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 they just don't sit for months in some cases, um, uh, or longer in some cases. You get incredibly, incredibly like, you know, like, like a shambling ruin, you know. You, and, um, and at a certain point, it's very common that it's like you kind of pop out of your body. It's like, you know, there's that shambling wreck down there, and then there's me, and I'm fine. I don't hurt anymore. I'm not tired anymore. I feel amazing. And not only that, I know that if that bit gets run over by a bus, I'm just fine. I'm cool. And so actually this this also happened to, to my own teacher. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you, but it, it, it's, it's sort, it can be very compelling. You think, wow, this is amazing. And um, so he was absolutely convinced this was it. This was his great enlightenment. And his teacher was, no, carry on, carry on, carry on. Um, uh, but nevertheless, it, it, it does radically shift your, your relationship to, to the body, where you kind of, you get this intoxicating sense that, you know, come what may, I'm good. I'm, I'm just good, you know, and a lot of fear that we carry around is based around the well-being of this body. And when we know that actually it's really quite nice when, you know, you're up there, um, that, that, that's a bit of a shifter. Anyway, so that, that's very common and that's, a, a, um, that's not it, but nevertheless, it's often seen as a way marker along the way. Um, and um, and you, so you get super tired and uh, so your, your study, your, your, your actual meditation um, tends to become very, um, very stupid, I suppose. And, and I say stupid and that sounds like a negative. Um, in Zen, it's actually not necessarily taken as a, as a, as a negative. My, my own teacher's first name, they would give you different names off different stages and everything. And his first his teacher gave him the name Shugu, which means Shu is um, uh, Gu means stupidity. Shu is like preserving or maintaining, maintaining your stupidity. And you, you, you kind of get into this kind of uh, zombie state, really, you know, I suppose, um, in which you can be very sort of open. And there's a kind of a potential, a kind of a, um, you don't even realize it, but it's kind of like you're, you're around like an unexploded bomb. And then usually when you least expect it, you walk around the corner or something, or you trip over, or, or I don't know, it starts raining, it could be anything, and poof, and there you are. And then you've got it. And then it's like, um, basically, then you know that that optical illusion of little old me, great big universe, you know that that's just so not the case that it's laughable. It's just like, and then people often laugh or dance about or start crying, all three, you know, all that kind of stuff, whatever. But um, but the key thing is that that shift, that shift. And and so the uh, the night sitting process is one way that that gets set up. Now, um, um, the uh, that's a little bit different to, in, in my early years in the monastery, um, uh, there is a kind of a visionary dimension within Zen, which is not very well known. Um, in the tradition, certain teachers uh, have quite a strong thread of that and, and dreams and, and so on. And so my, my first Zen teacher used to, 
I can remember more than once. One time he said, he said to all of us, um, I want you to, um, to fly in your dreams. Ex you know, explore what needs to happen to learn to be able to fly in your dreams. Um, and um, so, you know, we all did. And, uh, after a bit, I kind of got it. And it was amazing, really brilliant, you know, and, uh, and so on. And, um, and also, um, so the, the, there's that sort of dream dimension. But also, um, probably more um, emphasised was this quality where it seemed like you could almost slip from the meditative condition, you know, into sleep and sort of maintain it through the night. And whether or not there really was, but there was a, a felt sense of a sort of a continuity that you could then emerge come morning. You know, that sense of, you know, that sort of thing could happen. Now with the Tibetan stuff, um, I went and did some stuff with them. Um, have you met Charlie Morley? He's a great guy and I don't know, he'd probably be up for doing interviews with you or whatever, this sort of thing. I've interviewed him, yes, I know Charlie. Oh, okay, okay, great. So, um, you know, he, I did, I did a little bit with him and, um, and, and I really loved it and I really loved um, you know, the more technical dimension that, uh, that he brought to it and, and from the Tibetan tradition. And, and I love the way that, for example, they have this saying that um, practicing the dream is nine times more powerful than practice when you're awake. That, for example, you know, when you're in the dream, there's kind of no limits. So, for example, if you're doing prostrations, you could have a thousand of you doing the prostrations, you know, or, you know, it's just like this sort of beautiful um, sort of ability to kind of shift reality around like that. Now, that sort of conscious manipulation of the dream state, I haven't come across in, in the Zen tradition, not to my knowledge. Um, but in terms of what I've shared with people in the retreats and so on, um, you know, in terms of, um, uh, you know, uh, facilitating that, um, that, 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 that awakening shift that seems to be fairly commonly occurring at night. Um, it's been more around this exploring that continuity of awareness, you know, slipping in, as it were, from that sort of inquiry in the awakening state, just keeping that going, almost like planting, planting that seed of, of questioning deeply enough that it can just keep bubbling, bubbling, bubbling through the nighttime hours. And, you know, people just wake up in the middle of the night, they sit up, they got it, you know, and things like that. It's pretty regular. I'd like to ask you a bit about what it is, actually, uh, very shortly. What ended up working for you trying to figure out how to fly in your dream? Did you, did you hit okay. upon a kind of, uh, I guess you, you had to make your own method up uh, by the sounds yeah. of it. Yeah, there was no method. It was just sort of uh, intention, really. So, um, so basically what I ended up doing was um, uh, um, uh, just, 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 just um, uh, as I was falling asleep, just um, I want to fly, I want to fly, just sort of, uh, I don't know, establishing that intention. I think it took about a week, something like that. And then whoosh, there it was. And I was flying over a sunlit England, you know, this, the, it was just amazing, beautiful, really, really tremendous, tremendous fun. Yeah, really nice. 
Um, but no, so there wasn't any any real technique beyond just just intending it or, or wishing it to happen. How many hours were you sleeping at, at, in the, in your schedule at that time? And were you in control of that dream? Or did you just find yourself dreaming and that was sufficient to pass that instruction? That's a good question. Um, I think I was actually in that case, I think I was in control. Now, when I did Charlie's thing, um, have you done his thing? Yeah. It's good fun. Yeah, it's good fun. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. So you, you go to bed for the first half of the night, you get up, you have this kind of slumber party all together, and he basically wakes you up every, is it 45 minutes? Or hour and a half. Every hour and a half, isn't it? because it follows the sleep cycle. So uh, when I did it with him, um, it was like um, the first night, I, it was very straightforward. I found myself on this dustbin lid kind of thing, about, about the size of a dustbin lid, like a flying saucer thing, just floating around. You know? And then, and I remembered, ah, yeah, but this is a real good opportunity to meditate. So I was sitting on this dustbin lid thing, floating space you know and so in that sense it, i was sufficiently conscious sufficiently aware to um uh to you know to to actually make choices within the dream and then i don't know how it was for you but the second night uh for me um i uh i i, I kind of tried a bit too hard you know and it was like that one hour went past two hours went past and I, I just basically didn't sleep. I was, I was kind of like so, so keen to get into it that you know that that's that killed it, that killed it. But I've played with it subsequently, and uh, and uh, and it's been kind of fun. Yeah. So back in the monastery years, how long? What was the sleep thing like? Well, it wasn't in, in Soto Zen. They don't emphasise the night sitting type of thing. So. Um, um, we weren't getting up super late, five o'clock or something, uh, super early, and um, we were going to bed at about ten or something or eleven. Not not super. Late. In Japan, it was a lot more attenuated to sleep type of thing. In the UK, not so much. Not so much. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. You know, by way of interest, I think it is the Carthusians that, um, or may, not the Carthusians, the Benedictines, the rule of Saint Benedict where they they also interrupt the sleep cycle with their services. There's a Latin term for it, nocturna, something or other, I can't remember. They also keep them in a very sleep-deprived, or at least sleep-disrupted state. That's part, part, of, their, um, part of their training. So um, the, the, something that I think comes to mind often with the monastic uh, vocation is the, of course, typically, it's, what is it? in the Catholic tradition anyway, chastity, poverty, and obedience. And Thomas Merton famously said that obedience was the difficult one for him. <laughs> you know, he was okay with chastity and he was okay with poverty. He's an American. Americans are conditioned from the deepest level to be disobedient. That's their sort of fundamental orientation, really, isn't it? And so uh, I'm curious, you know, you, you left a career as a scientist, from what I understand, working in the pharmaceutical industry. What was it like to give up that side of life? But becoming a monk, what is it like? Uh, what was it like for you to give up that yeah. side of life of uh, the sexual side of life, the romantic side of life, that whole aspect that one puts aside as a as a monk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, 
basically for me, I just really, really, really wanted to do what I wanted to do. And I was almost willing to pay any price. It was kind of like that. So um, the celibacy, I just sort of took it on really as, as, as part of the deal. And um, the life was pretty physical. You know, I was working pretty hard. Um, as I say, there's very, very little solitude and so on. So it, it wasn't ever a huge deal, really, for me, uh, personally. Um, what I experienced, particularly over time, was um, almost like that sort of, um, how can we say, that sort of sexual oomph sort of interiorized into a sort of a, a warm scrumminess that was next to permanent, really, you know, pretty much always there. And just just sort of, you know, was a, a sort of a, 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 a an accompaniment through life, really. Um, and so it wasn't really a great kind of suffering. And I, I think probably celibacy gets a bit of a bad rap. You know, it, it uh, there's, uh, there's, there's potentially a lot of great stuff within that, I feel. Um, so that was some, yeah, that was my experience. It wasn't really ever a big deal. Probably the obedience thing, maybe a bit like Thomas Merton, was a bit more of a deal in some ways, um, because it was a kind of a setting in which, um, but basically the deal was there was no saying no. Whatever somebody asked you to do, you, you did it. Even if you knew it was absolutely impossible, you went and did it, and then when it proved to be impossible, then you could go back and, as it were, report in. But there was no, you know, as it were, um, you know, arguing the toss from the word go. And, and in many ways, you've got a very artificial environment, um, you know, within um, a kind of a monastery setting in which uh, that can be, I don't want to use the word manipulated, but that can be um, kind of worked on. So what I mean is... Um, uh, you know, when you're a sort of a new guy, you get pretty easy, straightforward, um, kind of, uh, you know, fairly grounded work, cleaning, sweeping, very physical, nothing to think about. And then as, as time goes on, you know, as your practice is supposed to mature and develop, you get more responsibility, you get more challenge to the point where it, it gets, and actually I, this in, was my experience in both of the settings I, I practice in, you get where you're, you're supposed to be in here, in X doing this, and in Y doing this at the same time. Not once, every day. You have to literally do the impossible every single day. That's just, you know, that's just the requirement. And it's amazing, somehow or other, you, you do it somehow, somehow. And it's kind of set up that way, really, I suppose. That's part, as you say, of the setup, the training formulation yeah. that you agree to when you enter into yeah. that sort of a life. And so I'm very curious. One of what I've often heard people uh, say is that that kind of tran you've described it as a sort of transcendence or the way that sort of pressure works on you to produce a certain sort of relaxation or ability to be with those difficulties can often be 
confused or conflated with just a general passivity. Yeah. And so I'm yeah. curious, in a, I can see in a monastic setting how that radical agreement would, would have a tremendous training potential. How does one differentiate between afterwards, perhaps, coming out of that environment, or how does one think for oneself, assert uh, proactive or independent direction? How does one tease apart just becoming passive yeah. and the greater openness that that approach, it seems, is purported to bring about? Such a tremendously important question. So uh, there's an important Zen master in our background and uh, called Hakuin, who has this saying that um, Buddhas are like water and ordinary people are like ice. And so, you know, it's a fairly clear image. The, the, uh, the process of the practice is to melt the ice, you know, to, uh, to deal with the frozen up, the tight, the closed, the, the, uh, the defensive, all of that stuff. So great. Does that mean that practice is about turning into the cosmic puddle? Well, if it goes right, what happens is the ice melting becomes not a puddle, but a fountain. There's a shape there. There's an energy there. It's ungraspable. There's nothing you can hold on to. But nevertheless, there's a kind of a vitality, um, a, a directionality um, that, 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 that can kind of manifest. And the great promise is that um, that is, uh, you know, where it can all go. Now, can it go wrong? Can people end up as puddles? Well, I've seen it with my own eyes. Yes, you know, it can. It can. Uh, I guess there's no there's no safe option. Every every step you take got a risk element, and certainly the you know Zen process, particularly traditional Zen, is fairly high stakes. And uh, there's many different ways it can go wrong, and that is definitely one of them. People can end up becoming just um, um, sort of, uh, I suppose, yes men in a way, where where there's no you know, they're hollowed out, I suppose, or sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, less than fully alive. But that's not where it's supposed to go, and that's not where it potentially can go. So that, that's the image that works for me to sort of distinguish that, if you like. In the interim, before one has become fluid, when one's still a little ice, maybe yeah. more and more water, um, if one's not in a monastic set situation where it's a clear cut, um, or you always simply say yes, uh, that it's clear in a certain sense what to do in yeah. the world outside of the monastic situation. Um, yeah. I think to, to live in that radical agreement of saying yes to every single thing, uh, as, as well as being, say, an emergency room doctor or a high school teacher or something like that, it seems yeah. it strikes me that the operation from a training point of view, uh, would be more complex at that point. Uh, how to yeah. do the thing that the, is happening in that monastic setup without the monastic structure. Mm. Yeah, it's harder. I, I, uh, I think it's a little bit like the difference between going off to university and doing it all in three years and doing your open university in 
five or six or however long it takes, you know, almost inevitably it's going to take longer and be more complex. Um, but it's in many ways, it's the same process. Um, the uh, uh, I, I expect you, like me, have met many husbands who seem to be pretty hollowed out and passive. And uh, in fact, um, I've been toying with writing a book called The Two-Person Monastery about the same sorts of processes that go on in that rather heightened way and how they actually do go on in the stresses and strains of daily life, you know, out and about. And in fact, one of my students who's married is actually, he's probably going to write it because, you know, it's a bit more authentic coming from him. But, um, you know, one of the things that people sometimes think is like um, monastery life is, you know, serene and peaceful and, you know, like some kind of Shangri-La. It's a drama. It's a soap opera. Whatever haircut people have got, they're still the same old nonsense. And it's endless. It's absolutely endless. So, you know, it's just the same, really. Family life, monastery life, whatever. It's the same old nonsense. So you quite explicitly in your writing and in uh, your uh, teaching materials, emphasize enlightenment as a priority. And many teachers of Buddhism and in specific in meditation in general are quite coy about enlightenment as a, uh, actually. I'm curious why you think that there's such a coyness. Why does that you take a different view? And I'm also curious as to what it is. I understand from what you've been saying and from what you've written, there are different stages, even in, in the life of someone like Hakuin, who you uh, referenced. There are different, he had different awakenings over, over a period of time. So I'm yeah. curious what your map for that is. Uh, the other question I have about that, which I'll just put in here as an addendum, you can ignore it if you like. I'm very curious. There's also tradition in Zen, as you mentioned, of stories of awakening. Uh, mm -hmm. It is something that there is a tradition to talk about and to lay out. And I wonder if it might be interesting for you to take us chronologically through your significant awakening experiences in so much as they accord to the sort of maps that might exist in, in your tradition. All right. OK. OK. Um, well, um, yeah. All right. Let's jump in. OK. So uh, I've never done that before. That's kind of cool. It might be a good question for next time, just so I can you know, sketch out some some high points for you, but but I can I could probably pretty much randomly just pull out some things, but it it, it might not be hundred percent chronological. Anyway, okay, so um, so why don't people emphasize this stuff? Some of them don't know it, um, I suspect, and certainly uh, that that seems to be how it looks to me. That's fight and talk, Dizer. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it probably is. Um, uh, um, and uh, um, well, some of them also um, there. There is a view that if you lay it all out too specifically, then people are going to at least unconsciously, possibly even consciously, sort of um, try to, as it were, model their experience on a particular kind of, uh, you know, uh, roadmap or scheme or something like that. And uh, I think that's a genuine danger. And, and so some teachers are basically 
um, you know, and let, let the guys work it out on their own. Well, um, that, uh, that's, um, uh, there's definitely a case to be made for that, I think. And there is a, there is a, a danger that, um, you know, you can sort of put ideas in, in people's minds and so on. So, um, on the other hand, you know, one of the things that perhaps breaks my heart um, more than others is people who perhaps dedicated maybe a decade, maybe more of their life to quite seriously doing this sort of thing, and they're nowhere. They're basically, you know, they're basically just not gone. And uh, my view and my teacher's view also is, is basically why prolong the agony. It's not that difficult to, to actually, you know, get the first foot in the door. I often say to the guys on those retreats, it's way harder to get your driving license to do than to do this. You know, it's not that hard. So the scheme I use that I found most helpful for people and makes most sense for me, I suppose, too, is um, um, the, uh, and as far as I can tell, it goes right back to the Buddha himself, um, is uh, um, he calls it the 10 fetters. Basically, uh, you know, the, the bottom line, what's getting in our way is greed, hate and delusion. And uh, so we'll unpack that a bit in a moment. But this 10 fetters is basically um, a series of stages of awakening. And each of the stages is awakening. It's not that you've got to do all of them to get to awakening. It's like um, even at stage one, he says you become what he calls a noble person. You enter a new family. You enter the family of the noble ones. And even if you've done that, even if you've only done that first stage, he says the rest will inevitably unfold. It may take longer or shorter time, but it will unfold. So it's, so it's monumentally important, I believe, even to just get people that first stage down the line. It, it absolutely changes everything. So that first stage, um, uh, the Buddha calls it entering the stream. And the sort of entry requirements are basically three, to see through that optical illusion of me as a sort of a fixed, solid lump, like a billiard ball rolling across the table of life, you know, to see clearly enough that that's just not how it is. You know, it's clearly not that way, and you've got it, okay? The second one is doubt. There's absolutely no doubt. It's like, uh, you know, I often say to people, it's a little bit like, you know, when you were seven years old, eight years old, six years old, you kind of got it that Father Christmas doesn't exist. And, you know, once you've got that, it doesn't matter how many Christmas cards you get with the big jolly guy on, you're vanishingly unlikely to start believing in Father Christmas again. Once you've got it, you've got it. It's, it's akin to that, okay? So that's the second one. And then the third one is essentially, um, there's no reliance on what they call rites, rituals, and righteousness. So you know, you absolutely know that there's no ceremony, there's no magic, there's no hocus pocus that's going to make this happen. It's simply a matter of awareness, simply a matter of clarity, simply a matter of addressing reality 
with an open-eyed, unflinching gaze and just seeing it all the way through. That's it. And then the righteousness business is, um, you know, it's not enough to become, you know, one of the good people. It's tremendously important to be a good person, but being a good person in itself won't do it. Okay. Um, it's, it's again, it's a matter of this clarity. So that we can do in 64 hours. We can see through that optical illusion of me as a solid lump of a this, as it were. We can do that in 64 hours to the point where people have got it for life. It's theirs. And it's not, um, it's not a, an experience. It's not, um, sometimes there, there are experiences around it, you know, there can be, you know, dancing around the room and joyfulness and whatever, laughing and crying and God knows what else, but not always. Sometimes it's very quiet. Sometimes it's just like, oh, you know, but the thing is when they get it, it's a bit like the Father Christmas thing. They've got it. It's just that simple and that clear. So, so that's a big part of what I do. So me, when did, when did that sort of clarify for me? Um, so I've been living in the monastery, um, let's see now, I've been a monk for about, a, about nine months or something, practicing like a loony, like a bull at a gate, as I say, you know, have all this stuff just, just coming up and everything. And um, our life was quite separate. We had lay guests and visitors, but, but they were, we were quite separate to them. You know, we weren't even really supposed to have conversations with them, this kind of thing. But there was one night, there was something going on. I forget exactly what was going on, but, but um, we all had, all us monks had to come and sit in the same meditation hall as the lay people. And you sit facing the wall in Soto Zen. And uh, so all the lay people were in the front rows, all facing the walls, and then we were all sitting behind them. So I was sitting behind this guy, and uh, he was called Arthur. I knew that. Didn't know him. Never spoke to him. Um, old guy, very modest, very unassuming, very ordinary guy. Okay, but just sitting in the dark behind this guy that evening, he was sufficiently on beam in some way that it just, oh, there it was. And, you know, it was absolutely undeniable. So it was literally there and then in the city. That guy, I never thanked him. I never got to talk to him. I hope he's doing great. I'd love to, but um, I never had that opportunity. But that night there in the city, boom, it was like I sat down like this, I got up like this, you know. And that sort of, as I say, that optical illusion, that that me against the world thing, gone. Can you describe the, or can you remember, I expect you can, can you remember the phenomenology of that point? That you're sitting there behind Arthur, and presumably yeah. there's a, a as, the, as the clock's running up to that moment, there's something is occurring or there's something going on, and then after that point, something's happening. Can you remember the yeah. phenomenology in, in terms of your personal experience? Yeah, 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 okay. Um, so, uh, the quality of the, the approach, as it were, was, a, um, um, almost like a sense of gathering, a sense of a, an internal gathering, um, 
almost like a potential energy starting to, to manifest. But at the same time, a very, uh, a very palpable stillness. Very, it was very, uh, I mean, people talk about a pregnant silence, you know, that sort of quality was there, I would say. And then the thing itself was almost like a sort of a, it was a bit almost like, um, you know, when your computer's gone a bit weird or something, you you click it on and you click it off again. It was almost like that, like a sort of a uh, a reset, a sort of a, you know, a, a, or the lights going off and, and going on, like that kind of thing. And then, and then it was, okay. It was just, and it was just, it, it was it was nothing in the sense of you know nothing was different absolutely i was here Bar arthur was there you know everything the same but but it was it was it was this kind of shift and um, and uh it wasn't for, for me immediately afterwards it was quite there, there was a sort of a strong energetic quality um, within the, the sort of thing and and strange enough it was more that night and then on to the next day um there was this almost intoxicating sense of all rightness absolutely everything you know it was all right it was and i was all right it was and and it just went on and on almost like waves of that and um and there was a period of some probably months after that where it was almost like my brain had to rewire everything made a different kind of sense you know uh, even stuff like like the bible like our background you know it was like so much of that from this perspective if you like was like oh okay well that kind of works you know um and so many different things so um so um but you know, life went on, and um, it, it, it um, you know, I, I knew at the same time there was there was further to go. It, it wasn't like um, you know, clouds of glory, finito, all done, get out the deck chair. It wasn't anything like that. Um, and and you know, carried on, and and in many ways, um, some of that stuff clearing, you know, all of that kind of dimension that probably even heightened after that i would say and and actually you know, carried on and uh, uh, yeah there was there was more of that so then after that um well okay so uh, how about our scheme so the, so we've got we've got essentially these 10 fetters okay the buddha's sort of scheme which seems to make kind of sense to 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 people i talk to about it so you've got that initial thing Pretty easy peasy, you know, as I say, we've had, we had one time a lady come on that retreat and um, she'd somehow got the idea it was a spa weekend, you know, and she bought us swimming trunks or whatever, towel, God knows what else. And, you know, when she found out what it was, she had no background in any of this stuff. She thought, well, I'm here, I might as well join in. So anyway, she joined in, you know, she gets it. She gets it and she still comes and does stuff with us now. You know, so it, it doesn't, it's not that hard. It's really not that hard to, to see through that, to, to get that. So now the next level in the Buddhist scheme of things is dealing with um, uh, what I call the push-pull forces, the uh, essentially the attractions and 
aversions. The attraction stuff is all about a sense of lack. I need or I want, I need this, I need, you know, whatever it is, that relationship or that Maserati or that lump of money or whatever. And then the aversion is the opposite. Okay. And um, in, uh, in the way the Buddha seems to lay out this scheme, uh, for that second level of awakening, I suppose we could call it, that um, push-pull quality, that slavery, if you like, or that fetter of being pulled around by this stuff, pushed around by this stuff, uh, doesn't get eliminated, but it gets diminished. And it seems with a number of people, and I think I would put myself in this, that seems to be kind of like a gradual process. You get quite a number of these kind of like blinks, as it were, a little bit like that. I, I remember, for example, um, the day before my Dharma transmission ceremony with my first teacher. Um, so we were up in the North Pennines, up in Northumberland. And um, in the, I mean, he almost started that monastery. I mean, he was very, very there right in the early days when they were super, super poor. And uh, on his days off, he used to go up to the head of the valley where there was a lead mine and work up there to make a bit of money to keep the, um, yeah, to keep the place going. And the, the day before my, my, uh, my Dharma transmission, I had a little bit of spare time and I walked up the valley to this lead mine. It was now disused, you know, just like mounds of, of uh, grass and stuff. And, um, and I did a bunch of prostrations, a bunch of bowers there. And right in the middle of all this bowing, woof, there it was again. You know what I mean? Um, and, um, um, and then, um, you know, there's, I don't know, there's been God knows how many of this kind of thing. Um, I'd probably have to try and sort of drag it all out again, to be honest. Um, there was one not so long ago, I was in Tibet. So it was, again, it was this kind of quality of um, uh, almost like a reset, everything sort of blinking off, blinking on again. Um, I mean, they call it in Zen you know, like a death. And I suppose it is like a death, but I don't like to use that language because it scares people. I call it the great blink rather than the great death. Because um, like I say, it's, it's no big deal and it doesn't last long. You know, it maybe last a little bit longer sometimes, but it's, it's not really a big deal. Um, so yeah, it was kind of like that, right in the middle of doing those bars. Yeah. Um, and then more recently, I suppose, you know, as I say, you know, it's, it's been bunch of stuff really. Um, uh, so, um, where are we up to? Oh, so in, in Tibet, yes. So I was in um, uh, in Lhasa, in the Jokhang. So the Jokhang is kind of like the main, you've been up there? I know what, what it is, but I've never been there. It's like sort of like the main temple, the main monastery, like the heart of Lhasa. It's a remarkable, remarkable place. And um, so, um, uh, so I, um, let's see now, um, so there were a bunch of people visiting, um, you know, like lay visitors and so on, um, and uh, there was a, a ceremony about to happen, and uh, so I'm not sure if this group had, as it were, ordered up this ceremony, it'd been something made, or if it was a regular 
part of their daily schedule and they just happened to be there at that time. Anyway, I was wondering about, anyways, this was all about to happen. Um, and um, so um, uh, I'd been doing a bunch of practice, you know, before this, actually, I was a little bit opened up probably around this, including one of the things that you do, you know, if, you, if you've got time around the jockeying is there's a kind of a, a path around it that's probably about a mile and a half, I guess, like a roadway. And um, you can do this, this practice of three steps, one bow, three steps, one bow in the street. And um, I kind of wanted to do this. And uh, so I, uh, I found it like a stall where they were, because it's really dirty. Uh, but I found this stall where they were selling uh, sweatshirts. And I, I bought this black sweatshirt um, and um, I had a knife or something. I was able to cut the sleeves off it and roll them up to go over my knees because you're, 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 you're going down on, on paving flags here. Um, and then I wore the sweatshirt on top. It had some jingly thing on it. It was probably a girl's one, actually. I, mean, I can't remember exactly. Um, anyway, some sort of pattern on it. Um, and anyway, so I was doing these sort of bows and so on. And um, um, and uh, so it wasn't long after. It was maybe even that afternoon. I was in the jokang, actually, inside. This ceremony was just starting up. And um, so you had all the monks sat in rows, okay, with their big hats on and and these kind of um you know kind of capes they were chanting and stuff and once they really got going um, a lot of the lay visitors started to kind of file along the lines putting like these tiny little bits of money in front of each person like you know really like the smallest denomination you know, in front of each person all filing up you know and so on and um so I was kind of just watching all this, really, a little bit different to what I experienced, what, what have you. And um, as I say, I was a little bit open and, uh, and the, the atmosphere of the place is very remarkable as well. Suddenly, out of nowhere, um, I don't know where he came from, this Tibetan monk was like in my face like this. And he had the face of a demon. And he said, get out, get out of here, get out of here, you know, like this kind of thing. Um, and I don't know who he was, I don't know what it was all about, and he was gone in a flash, but it was so sort of disorientating, you know, it was so, um, you know, it was like discombobulating on every level, really. It was like, what have I done? Have I upset people? Am I, am I you know, am I messing up the local sense of what am I doing? What's happened? You know, it was like unmooring the boat, completely unmooring the boat. And um, so I, uh, I just sort of slipped off and did a little bit of meditation. And then, um, you know, a little bit of sort of like anger type stuff started to come up. Well, that wasn't very fair or whatever, or, you know. And, and then within all of that, this zoom happened. And it was like there was absolutely nowhere for that anger to get a purchase it was like you know they slipping into a zone in which that was just like utter utter irrelevance and so that guy became an amazing bodhisattva whoever he was whatever it was about whatever whatever local sensibility i offended um you know so so um so, yeah, and that was very much about this anger thing, you know, it was very clearly about um, 
this anger just literally not being able to get a purchase. Um, kind of interesting. Anyway, so um, so in that four level scheme, of the, um, the the Buddha's uh, scheme of the ten uh, fetters and the four levels of practice, the the, the third level is where the um, the um, the uh, essentially the push pull forces can get no more purchase at all. Finito, done, and. Um, um, that seems to be pretty high level, you know. I, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm nowhere near that, and I'm pretty sure it's pretty rare for people to be by that. I've, I've come across people sort of claiming to be higher level still, but then saying, "Yeah, but I still get angry," you know, or whatever. So I'm not too sure about it. It seems to me like, as far as I can see, the people who've gone furthest down this line. It seems to be, for example, if you liked vanilla ice cream and weren't that fond of chocolate ice cream beforehand, you're still going to like vanilla ice cream and not necessarily go for the chocolate. But your well-being doesn't depend on getting the vanilla. You know, it seems to be of that quality, as far as I can tell. Maybe there's further still that I haven't even seen, you know, haven't even approached, most likely. I mean, I'm still very much work in progress myself. And then the, the next level again is basically about the delusion level of stuff. So in a sense, that first level is dealing with a level of delusion. But then there's a whole other level potentially again, kind of like, um, you know, self-regard and conceit and attachment to particular states and so on. But I don't know. I'm just talking out of the books when I talk about that stuff. Lord knows. Lord knows. But it seems right. so far, you know, as far as I got so far, that. That sort of unfolding seems to, you know, seems to kind of work, at least at the, in the nursery slopes, if you like. And uh, it seems to make some kind of sense to the people who come and practice with me. And one of the nice things about it is particularly that bottom level, you know, it's very clear, you know. OK, you might have seen through the illusion of self, but um, anger, greed, all that stuff, utterly untouched. You can still be making a right old mess in your life. You can still be a fairly, you know, nasty human being and yet have a, an authentic um, insight, awakening. Um, and I think that's quite helpful, really, because, um, you, you know, one of the big things about this is, you know, when people start to think they've arrived and made it, you know, I'm the, I'm the one, whatever, then it all goes a bit weird. And... Um, so uh, if ever people kind of get like that on the on the retreats, at the end I have everybody reach over and shake hands with somebody next door and say, "Hello, I'm John, and I'm a bit special." Because you know, um, the real stuff can't, you know, if if it if it gets stuck, it, it can't. It, it seems like the best um, solvent is a sense of humour. What a wonderful place to leave it. Daisan, thank you. This was so wonderful. I'll, of course, include links to your website, Zen Ways, in the show notes so that people, if they'd like to find out more about you, can do so. And, of course, you've got a number of books, uh, two of which are called Practical Zen, actually, and I enjoyed them thoroughly, uh, reading them in preparation for this. So it's been such a pleasure. I would love to have you back on for part two because, biographically speaking, you're, you're about to go to Japan to enter an entirely different situation in a Rinzai monastic context. 
and that's just the next step. So I'd love to have you back on for a part two. Uh, but until then, Daizen, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Nice to talk. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.